You're welcome to another episode of Faith Detective. Faith Detective is a podcast that we talk about historical Christian figures. And it is always a pleasure to be here speaking to you through these airwaves. I'm your host. My name is Luatosin Harrison. Please note that all information shared on this podcast has been derived from online sources. Now, without further ado, let's move into today's episode. So today we step into the captivating journey of Franny J. Crosby. She was a 19th century visionary whose life resounds with melody and unwavering faith. Despite um, blindness from a very tender age, she went on to compose over 80,000 hymns, which still encaptures our hearts even till today. So join me as we celebrate this amazing woman. She entered the world as Franz Jane Crosby on March the 24th, 1820 in Brewster, a village located about 50 miles north of the New York City. She was born to John and Mercy Crosby. Franny, at the tender age of six weeks, felt really ill with cold. At the time, her mother took her to the village physician who gave the mother this mustard poultices to apply to address the issue. Crosby herself attributed a subsequent blindness to this treatment. Sadly, Franny's father passed away when she was only 16 months old, leaving her in the care of her mother and maternal grandmother whose name was Eunice Paddock Crosby. These women nurtured her with Christian values. They touched her the, the scriptures extensively. They fostered her involvement in John Street Methodist Church in Manhattan. When Crosby was three years old, the family relocated to North Salem, New York, and this was Eunice, her grandmother's hometown. Franny Crosby possessed a natural sense of humor and playful spirit from a young age. She eluded a joyful nature, actively just participating in sports with older children and often finding herself at the center of mischief. She had like vivid imaginations that allowed her to perceive the world through the descriptions of her peers, creating this mental image as clear as a sight. Her physical ability matched her imagination. She has fearlessly leaped over stone walls, engaged in tags, like she climbed trees, even rode on horses, and a heightened sense of hearing and touch just granted her the unique and detailed perception of her surroundings. She loved the sound of nature, and she considered them a constant feast to her senses. In her early years, a lamp became a devoted companion. Their bond was so unbreakable, with the lamp growing as they spent their days together. However, practicality intervened, and the lamp ended up as a roast on the dinner table. While others enjoyed the meal, young Franny, she only made like a connection, like it clicked, and then she realized that this feast was actually her beloved lamb. And she refused to partake in it because she saw it as a cannibalist consumption. After much tears, her neighbor brought her a new pet. And guess what it is? A lamb. But she refused. She said no, she didn't want. Because for her, the pain of losing had outweighed the joy of possessing. Her mother never 
gave up on her daughter receiving or getting her side back. So she still kept making inquiries. A particular surgeon named Valentin Moore examined Franny when she was about seven and concluded after his examination his word. My child, he said, in tone memorable for their kindness, you can never be made to see. And her mother was so grief stricken by this because Valentin Mott has come to have like such a reputation of being able to do tremendous things in line of surgery. So she was really hopeful that maybe this was finally the answer, but it was not to be so. But the child wasn't sad at all. In fact, at the age of eight, she wrote her first poem that like described her condition. And I quote, Oh, what a happy so I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world, contempted I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that others don't. To weep or sigh because I am blind, I cannot, nor I won't. She believed that uh, blindness was God's intention and she would often express gratitude for it. She also said that her blindness allowed her to focus on him writing, praising God, rather than being distracted by like worldly beauty. She even once stated that the first face she would see would be that of a saint. So in 1828, Franny and her mother, Mercy, they moved to Ridgefield, Connecticut, and they lived with a woman called Mrs. Owley. Here, they attended the local Presbyterian church. Crosby's home life was deeply rooted in the faith. By the age of 10, she was memorizing five chapters of the Bible every week. She maintained this until she was 15. She received singing lessons and attended the Methodist Bible services, falling in love with their hymns. By 1835, after she just turned 15, she enrolled at the New York Institution for the Blind, where she studied there as a pupil for about eight years and an additional two years as a graduate student. So during her time at NYIB, that's the New York Institute for the blind she learned to play various musical instruments she developed her singing abilities and at this time her mother mary had remarried and had three children so franny embraced her time at the school with like this wholehearted enthusiasm she was determined to make the most of every opportunity it offered and her spirited nature and just natural gift for companionship endeared her to her fellow blind students, making her a beloved figure within their circle. Her ability to craft verses just made her peers to really admire her, and their praises threatened to inflate her ego. Yet, she had this very wise teacher who recognized the potential danger to excessive praise. So to safeguard Franny from the pitfall of flattery, he called her into his office for a very candid conversation and in his gentle but firm guidance he shared valuable truth about her poetry and her character franny shun a flatterer as you would a viper those were exactly the words he spoke to her because he needed to emphasize the importance of humility and discernment in the face of compliments now this was a very pivotal moment because it was a meeting of like mentorship and like candid advice that would go on to shape Franny's understanding of her own talent and the significance of remaining grounded in the midst of admiration. 
So it was not just a lesson in the craft of poetry, but a broader lesson of the importance of authenticity and humility in her journey ahead. During her time at school, Franny Crosby continually enjoyed like special advantages. She had the chance to meet very important people. The school hosted like visitors, including famous Americans. Even those from other countries really came to visit them at the school. So some remarkable people met Franny. She got to hear William Corley Bryant as he read this poem. She also remembered like President Paul, whose visit left a good impression. She was always excited by the presence of General Wilfred Scott. She also loved the words of Henry Clay because to her, his speeches always left her in awe and always reminded her of the power of words. So when she completed at NYIB in 1843, Crosby took her knowledge and passion to Washington, D.C., where she became a part of a group advocating for blind education. So in this groundbreaking move, she became the first woman to address the United States Senate by reading a poem that spoke about the importance of education for the blind. Her word resonated with them. Franny's e- efforts, however, did not stop there. Alongside fellow students from NYIB, she presented a concert to Congress in 1844 using her talent to call for educational institution for the blind across states. This eloquence led to higher admiration, including praises from John Quincy Adams. She continued to contribute her voice to important causes, even speaking before the New York State in 1851. In April 1846, Crosby also addressed a joint session of Congress representing both Boston and Philadelphia Institute of the Blind. She passionately advocated for blind education in these cities. Her advocacies reached the highest level with performance at the White House with President Polk and his wife. Her song, Our President, captured the plea for the blind welfare. Back in NYIP, Franny's role had evolved from being a graduate student to becoming an instructor. So she became an integral part of this particular institution. Her dedication to it was unwavering, and she taught subjects like grammar, rhetoric, and history. And she only left NYIB three days before her wedding. Now, during her time teaching at NYIB, Franny Crosby formed a very close relationship with Grover Cleveland. He was a young assistant to the superintendent and he stood out for his sincerity and ability. He would later become the United States president. At this time, he was just 17 and they would often spend countless hours together particularly at the end of each day because he often assisted her in writing down the poems that she detected. Now, their bond was so strong that Cleveland wrote a recommendation for her, which found its place even into an autobiography that was published in 1906. Franny's ties with him were deep as they were evident in the poem that she crafted for the dedication of Cleveland's birthplace in New Jersey. She continued to contribute her voice like important causes and speaking before the New York Senate legislature, even in 1851. There came a sober moment when the shadow of sorrow fell 
upon this institute as cholera erupted within the walls in November of 1849. And the city was a battleground for this merciless epidemic and the haunting cry of bring out your dead echoed in the night. A grim reminder of the havoc that was wrought. Sadly, many of the blind people within the institute fell victim to this invisible adversary succumbing to his grasp. Even Franny Crosby was not spared from its touch. One afternoon, the initial signs surfaced within her with unwavering courage. She chose to keep the news hidden, quietly tending to herself with medicine and just trying to adhere to all the precautions. Placing her trust in God, she braved the darkness of uncertainty. When dawn broke, she woke up to a new day, I held miraculously restored. So the days of the epidemic were marked with despair, leaving an indelible mark on the hearts and the minds of those who lived through it. The scars of this dreadful time was a reminder of the fragility of life and the strength of the human spirit in face of adversity. Franny Cosby spent 11 years as a teacher. After cholera epidemic, it was recounted by someone named Blum Morfair that there was a noticeable change in Franny Cosby's demeanor after this period, that she started to look tired, lacking energy, and she seemed to, to be just struggling even after the institution reopened. As a result, she had to take like lighter teaching load during this period to accommodate her state of being. According to Bernard Ruffin's perspective, amidst an atmosphere heavy with death and sorrow, Franny found herself turning inwardly, deeply contemplating the state of her own soul. The weight of mortality surrounding her prompted a profound self-examination. She had to begin to acknowledge that there was a missing piece in her spiritual journey, recognizing that she had become so entangled in various social, political, and educational reforms, she realized that her heart lacked a genuine and abiding love for God. So the most profound moment during this phase of Franny's life was her conversion. Although she had a religious inclination since childhood, it wasn't until she reached the age of 31 that she experienced what she referred to as her through conversion. So despite religious upbringing, she had not felt the full assurance of Christ's love and God's forgiveness until this private moment. And it all began with a vivid dream. In this dream, a close friend of Franny appeared to be gravely ill and kept asking her, will you meet me in heaven? Even though her friend was perfectly healthy after Franny woke up, the question lingered and sparked deep contemplation within Franny. It was around this time that she and her companion were singing the hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. As they reached the line, Here, Lord, I give myself away, Franny made a definitive commitment to God, which was followed by an overwhelming surge of light and joy, which enveloped her. Following this transformative experience, um, Franny Cosby joined the old John Street Methodist Church, her conversion now became the cornerstone of her inner life, her life's purpose, and the very essence that flowed through her hymns. This moment of clarity shaped her spiritual journey. It influenced her life work, and it infused her hymns with profound sentiment that resonated with countless hearts. Now, we are kind of going back a little. So, Franny's literary journey 
took its first step in 1841 when the New York Herd published her eulogy honoring the late president William Henry Harrison. This marked the beginning of her career as a writer. Her poetic composition, they found their ways into various publications like the Saturday Evening Post, the Fireman's Journal, the Saturday Emporium, the Clinton Signal, and so much more. Although Franny initially hesitated to share her poems publicly because she always deemed them to be unfinished production, she eventually agreed to publication. Her motivation laid majorly in promoting the New York Institute of the Blind and raising funds for it. She had a period of illness that led her to temporarily leave the institution for recovery. But encouraged by the institution, she released her first book called A Blind Girl and Other Poems in April of 1844. Now, among its pages was an evening hymn based on Psalm 4, the verse 8, which she recognizes as her own first published hymn. During this time, the blind orphan girl poem found its way to Caroline M. Sawyer's book in 1853. So she wrote many, many poems at this point that showed themselves in notable books. One even emerged in 1858 in The Wealth of Colombian Flowers. And this coincided with her departure from the Institute of the Blind and her subsequent marriage. There were several co- collections that just contained like stories of Crosby and her journey just continued. Now, Crosby was known for also crafting like secular people song or what they would call back then as Palo song. At some point, Franny teamed up with George F. Ruth and composed over 60 secular or people song from 1851 to around 1857. So that's why the controversies like surrounding like this music, the creations were really a success. Their initial song was Fear Thee Well Kitty Dear in 1851. It wasn't a hit, but with their determination, they had like hits like the song The Hazel Dell, and that one sold over 200,000 spreadsheet copies. There's music in the air. They released that in 1854, which was also a hit. And they had another hit in 1855. However, Crosby's reward were really major because she was earning about $1 to $2 per poem. Yet, her influence extended beyond, beyond their partnership as she penned lyrics for other composers, showcasing a broad impact on the music of the era. During American Civic War, Franny Cosby's patriotic verse reflected her strong moral conviction. Notably, she wrote Dixon for the Union in 1861, and this was the response to the conflict. And she also wrote A Sound Among the Forest Trees in 1864, and this was urging volunteers to join the Union forces while invoking historical references. Crosby's commitment also extended to song to Jeff Davids, which was addressing the president Jefferson Davis with a firm belief in the Union's cause. She also composed Goodbye, Old Arm for Wounded Soldiers. She also composed Our Country and a tribute, and this was sung for the people that died during the war. 
Her patriotic spirit really persisted, and it was seen even in her 1908 contribution to the Daughters of the American Revolution. And this also included another poem, The States We Honor. In the summer of 1843, Franny Crosby met a man named Alexandra Van Asnin the Jr. He was known as Van by all. They met at NYIB and they were both blind and they became acquainted. Eventually also became a teacher there and they got engaged and married on the 5th of March 1858. This couple also settled in New York and they led a pretty quiet life. But despite our marital status, Crosby still continued to use her maiden name for her writing career and this was at the insistence of her husband while using her married name for legal matters. The Van Ashnes, they had a daughter named Frances, who tragically died after birth in 1859. So following their daughter's birth, Van became more reclusive and the couple moved frequently, never owning their own home. Crosby was known for her hymns and her poems and gave public recitation and performances alongside Van, who always like, played the instrument and provided music for her poetry. They organized concerts, sharing half of the proceeds with the poor. So while their combined income was sufficient, Crosby had a charitable outlook and often gave away non-essential items. In later years, Crosby's financial situation actually became challenging because she was reported to be in a destitute condition in 1874. Fanny and Van led a very unconventional married life. They spent period of times apart. They lived independently of each other. By 1880, they had separated due to reasons that are undisclosed. And Franny moved a lot during this time, especially in challenging neighborhood Manhattan. They both lived separately for over 20 years. But somehow, they maintained an amicable relationship. They continued to minister together. They continued to show that their bond persisted despite their differences. In 1903, Franny acknowledged that despite their faults, they loved each other. Franny relocated from Manhattan to a modest apartment in Brooklyn. And then she was living close to her friends, which were notable figures of the time, like Ira Sankey and Phoebe Knapp. Let's talk more about her hymn writing legacy. She penned nearly 9,000 hymns, earning her the title of the most prolific 19th century America sacred songwriter. Despite challenges, her hymns were immensely popular and with estimated sales of 100 million copies. Franny faced exploitation by copyright practices of her time, but she remained steadfast in her dedication to writing hymns to the glory of God. Her inspiration led millions of people to Christ, and she prayed that each hymn would draw individuals closer to God and kept a record of reported conversion resulting from her composition. Crosby's hymn reflected a shift towards a more emotional and sentimental style of religious expression and it resonated with Victorian culture. Our work were often considered as simple and genuine. It touched the heart of many, focusing on religious experiences and emotion. Throughout her career, she collaborated with various composers from William B. Bradby 
to Philip Phillips and to many more. Phoebe Kapner was the person that Crosby co-wrote Blessed Assurance with and they became very close friends and collaborators. It was very important to note that Crosby's hymn writing process was deeply rooted in prayers and inspiration. She would start her work with a prayer, seeking guidance from the Lord. Despite her blindness, her capacity for work was so astonishing. Often composing six or seven hymns in a single day, she would mentally compose her hymns and poems, simultaneously working on multiple pieces at once before dictating them to an assistant. There were instances where she composed up to 40 hymns before they were transcribed. While she had musical training, Crosby usually didn't compose the melodies for her hymn. Initially, she focused on crafting the lyrics. By 1906, she did both the word and the music for the hymn, The Blood Washed Throng. This was a very rare occasion as she just usually would collaborate with musicians for the melody. Franny's hymn received mixed reactions. Some critics said it was so gushy and sentimental, while others criticized both her writing and theology. However, her hymn still deeply resonated with her contemporaries, expressing a profound longing in the human heart and the Christian experience. So despite criticism, many of her hymns have endured the test of time and they still connect to people today. She had hymns like more like Jesus, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior, Rescue the Perishing. And at this point in her life, she lived in really improvised areas because she was deeply aware of the challenges faced by the disadvantaged. And she had this very strong commitment to assisting those that are in need. Even the little proceed that she gets from her hymn, she gives it to this organization and contributed to organizations like American Female Guardian Society, Home for the Friendless, using uh, like lyrical talent to raise awareness and funds for their causes. Even hymns like Rescue the Perishing originated from her experience at a mission in New York worst district. Witnessing the needs of the lost just motivated her to write this hymn. So Franny's deep involvement in rescue missions and her dedication to helping the less fortunate are truly a testament of the sincere commitment to her faith and her desire to make positive impact on society. In her later years, particularly between 1880 to 1900, she had intensified her commitment to serving the poor and engaged extensively in various city rescue missions and just charitable endeavors and really helping with missionary work. She completely immersed herself in missionary works, dedicating herself to several, several organizations like the Cremon Mission, the Boy Wheel Mission, the Water Street Mission. She interacted with individuals struggling with alcoholism and unemployment. She offered conversations and counseling to those she encountered. Crosby was actively involved with the Boweri Mission in Manhattan for two decades, addressing large crowds during their anniversary services and collaborating with volunteer organist Victor Benke to compose songs for the mission. She also supported the Cremon mission established by Jerry and Maria Akili. 
which was situated in the area known for its vices. Crosby continually attended their nightly services, participating in singing of gospel songs and contributing to the mission's spiritual atmosphere. Crosby's involvement just extended round and round to a lot of mission work. Crosby's health now began to decline by May 1900. She was dealing with a serious heart condition and the effects of a fall. Her half-sisters intervened, encouraging her to relocate from Brooklyn to Bridgeport in Connecticut for better care and support. She lived with her half-sister, Julia, uh, and Julia's sister-in-law, Caroline W. Ryder. They initially rented a room before moving to an apartment where they resided until 1906. Crosby transferred her church membership to the First Methodist of Bridgeport in 1904 after she moved. In 1902, her husband, Alexandra, passed away. While she was unable to attend the funeral due to her own health struggles, she ensured his burial through the assistant of Phoebe Knapp, who covered the expenses at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Queens County of New York. The creation of the hymn, Save in the Hands of Jesus, really exemplified Crosby's remarkable ability to compose quickly. In April of 1868, Williams Howard Donald, he came to visit her with a melody. Just 40 minutes before his train's departure, and he urgently asked her if she could write lyrics for it. Crosby spent 20 minutes in deep thought, then turned to him, announcing that she has completed the verses. He hurried to catch his train, carrying with him the words that would bring solace to countless individuals. Save in the hands of Jesus, he swiftly gained popularity. Dr. John Hall, the pastor of the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York, remarked that no hymn provided as much comfort to mothers who had lost their children. The hymn also played a role in inspiring repentance and transformation. An example was a dying mother requesting her son to sing Saving the Hands of Jesus to her. He hesitated, admitting that he couldn't sing a lie about feeling saved. This confession led him to find solace and salvation in Christ. This hymn was among the first gospel to be translated into various languages. Iradin Saki was a collaborator with Crosby and also recounted an experience in Switzerland where he encountered a group of people singing the hymn in their own language under his window. The melody was recognizable and he engaged with them through an interpreter. He later concluded a song service in a French church in Basley where the hymn resonated deeply with the congregation while attracting people outside the church building. An English reporter seen its attendance recorded the hymn and published it in London newspaper. The creation of the hymn Saved by Grace, which also quickly gained popularity. The impact of Saved by Grace occurred in a church in Pennsylvania. During the Sunday service, a young woman rose to her feet and passionately shared her conversion story. She had attended the Sunday school there as a child, but her life had taken a worldly turn. But upon hearing Saved by Grace at an outward gathering, that led her to the transformative return to faith. Despite initial surprise, the congregation deeply moved by her testimony and they welcomed her back. In a different setting, another of Crosby's renowned hymn, Rescued from Perishing, which was born out of a visit to a mission in the New York City slum. This hymn was exemplified in the story of a drunk man who stumbled into a mission during a stormy night 
After hearing the hymn, he recognized the leader as his former captain from the civil war. This encounter led to his salvation and he transformed his life with the help of his newfound faith and supportive friends. You can go on and on and on about the transformative power of the hymns and the poems of Franny Crosby. However, despite the fact this is so good that we could continue and go on and on, we have to come to an end. And the end is the legacy of Franny Crosby. She continued to impact the lives of many even after her passing. So Franny Crosby died at Bridgeport of atherosclerosis and cerebral hemorrhage on February the 12th, 1915, after a six-month illness at the age of 94. She was then buried in the Mountain Grove Cemetery near her mother and other members of her family. Her family erected a small tombstone at her request, which carried the words, Franny J. Crosby, Auntie Franny, she had done what she could. Her legacy continued to impact lives even after her passing. And her philanthropic spirit was evident in her will, where she designated funds to establish a home for senior men who had no place to live. This home known as the Franny Crosby Memorial Home for the Aged, was founded in Bridgeport in Connecticut. And the king's daughter of the First Methodist Church of Bridgeport honored her wishes and raised the necessary funds to establish the home. It opened its doors on November the 1st, 1925, providing a place for elderly men to live. The home was in operation up until 1996, at this point, it was transferred to the Bridgeport Rescue Mission. That is over 70 years of impact. Franny's remarkable contribution to gospel and hymn nudie were recognized when she was inducted into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame in 1975. Her impact on the world of hymn writing earned her the title, The Queen of Gospel Songwriters. This was a fitting tribute to her prolific and spiritually resonant work. Franny Crosby's life and legacy was a testament of the power of faith, resilience, and creativity. Despite her blindness, she overcame numerous challenges to become one of the most beloved hymn writers in history. Her hymns continues to resonate with people of all generations, offering comfort inspiration and deep connection to spirituality her unwavering dedication to serving the less fortunate her involvement in urban mission work and her commitment to charitable causes showcased her compassionate heart through her hymns and actions she left an indelible mark on the world reminding us of the importance of empathy kindness and making a positive impact on the life of others Fanny Crosby's journey is a testament to the human spirit's ability to triumph in adversity, to find beauty in life's challenges, and to use one's talent for the betterment of society. Our hymns continue to be sung in churches all around the world. Our story continues to serve as an inspiration to all who encounters it. And I'll be leaving with you today two quotes from Fanny Crosby. The first goes, it is not enough to have a song on your lips. You must also have a song in your heart. 
take the world but give me jesus in his cross my trust shall be till with clearer brighter vision face to face my god i see thank you so much for just joining me on this very amazing and eye-opening and beautiful journey of franny crosby if you have any questions or topic you would like us to explore, please feel free to share and I'm here to provide any information and engage in any conversation with you. Your curiosity and truly your engagement is really valuable to me. So if there's anything that has inspired you in the story and in the journey of Franny Crosby, please do well to comment. And if you really enjoyed this episode, please also share just to help us get more traffic even to this channel. So until next time, I pray that the Lord would help us to see the beauty even in situations that are beyond our control and to truly use all that we have to honor God and to serve our community. Until next time, goodbye and God bless you.